start. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 today, and then we're going to cover all of chapter 7 as well. So we'll start in verse 33, and then make our way through the 25 verses of chapter 7. And the title for today um, regarding this passage is, In Weakness We Worship, and in Glory He Saves. So we're going to continue the Gideon story. We're going to get to the climactic finish of Gideon's great battle with the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the men of the east. But it's important for us to remember where Gideon came from, right? That Gideon came from the humblest of circumstances. If you can remember from last week, uh, he had a very similar call experience to that of uh, Moses. And what you'd see later on in Jeremiah, um, expressing weakness or inability or inadequacy. And how does the Lord respond to that? Well, it's kind of funny because we... We see these guys, and we even kind of see ourselves sometimes expressing our inadequacy to God, our inability to do what we seem to think he's calling us to do. And we think that God will respond in such a way as to say, okay, you know what? Hadn't realized that about you before. You are pretty inadequate, aren't you? You are actually kind of weak. You're sort of a scaredy cat, Gideon. I don't know why I came here. I don't know what I was expecting to find. Of course, God doesn't respond in that way. He intentionally chooses the weak things of this world to confound the wise, to put them to shame, so that the world would be in awe of what the Lord can do through those unexpected means, as we saw earlier. Through those unexpected means who embrace bold faith for him to take actual steps in following what he has called them to do. So let's go ahead and we'll read Judges chapter 6, starting verse 33. And then we'll pray as we get to the end of our reading. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to the Lord, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by your hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to the Lord, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. 
And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, the one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. The same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. And turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. His comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of watch when they had set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholalah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that what we have just done is indeed the most important thing we're going to do all day. Any time that we look to your word, 
we look to you to hear from you. And so in this moment now, we confess our own weakness. Whether we are aware of it or not, we confess even our weakness in this moment to receive what you have to say. Just like Gideon, Lord, we know, we, we notice that Gideon is, is having a hard time trusting you, having a hard time receiving what you have said. Boy, do our hearts resonate with that so often. So often we hear what you have to say and we live and walk and move and plan and think and perceive in our own ways. So, Lord, I'm asking for your help to teach us what we do not know, to make us what we are not, so that we might see Christ, be like him, and proclaim him in all things. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, the title this morning is, In Weakness We Worship and in Glory He Saves. So we see in that the kind of four key words that we want to notice here. Gideon has to move forward in the call of God with a matter of weakness to deal with. But the big change for Gideon happens in verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. No, I was right, 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. It's the best thing that Gideon does in this entire section. Better even than the acts of bravery and war that he um, leads his people in towards the end of this. It's the moment he realizes that God is true to his word, he is trustworthy, he is powerful, and he has no reason to doubt that God will accomplish what he set out to do in his life. Well, that's a lot for us to grab onto this morning when we come in for the first time for so long to gather together to worship and to kind of reset our minds for a second here. And, and remember what it's like to come together and sing and to pray and to look at the word together. There's a lot of different things that we're doing. We're not quite used to this anymore. I, I'm still kind of getting used to this even in this moment. I'm kind of reminding myself that, yeah, this is what normal Christian life is supposed to look like. And that's what's going to happen for Gideon. Gideon's going to realize what normal life following the Lord is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like bold faith coming from unexpected means, as we've seen before. And one who embraces his weakness, his inability, his inadequacy in order to worship the Lord and to see his glory as he saves his people. Well, the Lord never allows or brings trouble to his people for it to be washed away when the people realize that they've messed up, right? Like we saw last week in chapter 6, the Lord would not let the people think that salvation was a simple matter of a formula that needed to be followed. When they expected a judge to save them, they got a prophet. When they looked for a hero, they got a guy named Gideon, who certainly at the, front, at the first does not seem very heroic. And yet, what does the Lord say to Gideon? What are his first words? Anybody remember? Yeah, mighty man of valor. The Lord is what? With you. And that, that phrase is so beautiful because it explains why Gideon is a mighty man of valor. Not because he was, what was he doing, by the way? He was threshing the wheat at the wine press. Well, he was hiding from the Midianites, from the Amalekites, and from the men of the east. He didn't want to get caught and have them take all of his wheat. So he was hiding, he was afraid, he was concerned, he was sneaking around. And God calls him a mighty man of valor, a man of war, a hero. And the reason that he's able to call him that is because he says this, the Lord is with you. 
Well, again, we worship Christ in our weakness so that we can see the glory of Christ in our salvation and march forward by faith in his power alone. So this first section, 33 through 40, we're going to look at this, I, this strange favor that Gideon asks of the Lord regarding the dew and the fleece. And there's a lot of discussion about where this comes from, but one thing is absolutely clear. This is not prescribed anywhere in Scripture. That is to say that God did not tell his people, if you ever want to know for sure what I want you to do, go ahead and lay a fleece out overnight, tell me to make it wet and make the ground dry, and then the next day reverse that, and then you'll know for sure what I'm doing. Sounds kind of hokey, doesn't it? That's not exactly what God had intended. But it's something that we need to grow, and we need to grow in what Gideon needed to grow in here, and realizing that the Lord is patient in our fear, and he assures us of his plan and his presence. He's patient in our fear. He assures us of his plan and his presence. And that's what God does for Gideon here in an amazing way. When Gideon comes to him and says, hey, listen, let's, let's just look at it. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, I'm laying out a fleece of wool. Will you do this for me? God could have said, no, I'm not doing that. That's not how I do things. Are you crazy? I already told you what we're going to do. Let's go forth and do it. Instead, the Lord is patient with him. Well, Gideon, he has a quite, quite an enemy to face, doesn't he? The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the men of the east. And if you remember if, from this latter part of chapter 7, when he goes down into the camp, it says here, um, verse 12 of chapter 7, the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Kind of cool that the author uses that comparison of the sand on the seashore because that's what God describes his people to be like to Abraham when he promises that your offspring will, like, will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore be innumerable. And yet this reversal has happened that now it's their enemies that are innumerable. So Gideon has a lot to face ahead of him. Well, these Midianites and the Amalekites are camping nearby and are waiting for the moment to swoop in as they have for the last seven years and take everything away from God's people. It's pretty interesting for us to put, our, put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. So what if your neighbor was just waiting for you every time you came home from the grocery store to pull in, unlock your car, pop the trunk, and then they suddenly rushed across the street, grabbed all your groceries, and ran back to their house? Hopefully you'd call the police, right? What if there were no police? What if you called the police and the police said, mm, who lives across the street from you? Yeah, we're not messing with them. Midianites? No. Oh, I don't think so. Bad idea. Maybe they're waiting for payday to come, and the moment you get your check, they swoop in and take all that money that you've worked so hard to make the past week. This is what's going on for Israel. This is not only going on because the Midianites and the Amalekites and the men of the East are terrible people, but it's going on because God has so ordained that this would be their discipline to remind them that they must worship the Lord alone. What happens to Gideon here is fascinating. Again, verse 33, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the East came together and camped in the valley of Jezreel. And then verse 34, one of the coolest parts of this whole passage, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiazrites were called out to follow him and then so on with these other tribes as well. You know, all Israel was brought very low because of Midian, we learned last week. And Gideon, who was very low as well, has met with the angel of the Lord, and now he's being clothed with the Holy Spirit. 
That sounds like an amazing experience, doesn't it? He calls out the tribes in 34 and 35 to join him, and he amasses a huge army that totals 30,000. This nation that was brought very low has now quickly gathered together a formidable force to go against their enemies. And Gideon seems very confident. Surely the Lord has done this for him, right? Surely this is his plan. We saw in chapter 3 that Othniel had a similar experience with the Holy Spirit. And we'll see the same thing multiple times in Samson's life when the Spirit stirs and rushes upon him. It's important for us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, that it is different in the Old and the New Testament. That difference, in a simple way, boils down to working out and working in. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit clothes a person, for example, for a specific task and for a specific amount of time. But for New Testament believers, Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us from the moment of regeneration or the applying of the life-giving power of the work of Christ through the process of sanctification where he works step-by-step to make us more like Christ from one degree of glory to the next. And he inhabits us all the way through to the end to glorification where we do away with our earthly bodies and enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit becomes the constant companion of the Christian. He also, of course, works outwardly for the Christian as he works gifts uniquely through each individual for the edification of the church and for the empowerment of ministry. If you're interested in more um, than what we can actually discuss right here, um, I would direct you to Sinclair Ferguson's book, which is a, it's a book and it's a teaching series called Who is the Holy Spirit? And I've been enjoying that this past week. And if you don't know, all of Ligonier's Ministries uh, teaching audio and videos are available completely for free right now, which is a lot of R.C. Sproul to listen to if you uh, need to fill your time up. But I highly recommend, again, Who is the Holy Spirit by uh, Sinclair Ferguson, if not for just the strong, thick uh, Scottish accent that he has. Anyway, as it relates to what we're discussing here about our weakness and his power, I was especially encouraged by what Ferguson said regarding the coming of the Holy Spirit to individuals for that power. So Ferguson says, if you are a Christian believer, the Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to put Satan to flight is one and the same Holy Spirit the Lord Jesus has given to you to empower you to put Satan to flight. Speaking of the enemies of God's people, God clothes Gideon with the Holy Spirit so that he might go to battle against the enemies that he faces. The Lord does the same thing for us, but I think in a greater and fuller way than even Gideon experienced. Just as he was granted power by the Holy Spirit as he went to battle against his enemies, we are granted even greater measure and with fuller understanding the same Holy Spirit. Not only... For one act of salvation, mind you, as Gideon is clothed here until his task is accomplished, and then we assume the Holy Spirit would then leave Gideon at that point. The Holy Spirit never leaves his people. He's a constant reminder in our weakness of God's great power, of his direction, of his wisdom, and of his love. This Holy Spirit was also with Jesus. As true man and true God, Jesus walked this earth with the limitations of humanity. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, as he calls us to today, everything was different than would have been expected. He calls us to walk by the Spirit just as he did. 
It's an interesting study as well to consider the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, which I'll commend to you for further study later on. In our weakness, he has met us with the greatest power in the universe, himself. The Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars that you access and control and direct. The Holy Spirit lives inside of his people as the third person of the Trinity, truly God, present in and working through his people constantly, even right now as you're sitting here thinking about lunch. Or in my case, standing here thinking about lunch. Well, there's a problem with Gideon, though, here. He does get clothed with the Holy Spirit, but then there's a question that comes in. Is the work of the Holy Spirit enough to lead him to faithful confidence in what the Lord has called him to do? And clearly the answer is no. Gideon amasses the army and has one more moment where he just says, oh, Lord, if I could just get one more assurance that you're going to do what you promised you said you would do. Even though the Spirit has come and confirmed to Gideon the intentions of the Lord, that he's going to save his people, and it was evidenced by the amassing of this great 30,000-strong army, Gideon is still unsure. What he does here shows an issue not only of weak faith, but of weak understanding of God. The favor boils down to him asking God to make the fleece wet with dew and the ground dry in the morning, and then reversing it the next morning. To be fair, he definitely seems aware that he is at least coming close to testing the Lord in verse 39. He seems very apologetic, and he seems very very much in, trying to get the patience of the Lord upon him in this because he realizes he probably shouldn't do this. But he can't help it. He is simply unsure and unable to shake this great doubt. It seems he needed to take one step, then seek the Lord, then prepare for another step and seek the Lord again. That's just not such a bad thing, though, is it? For us to want to know that the Lord is with us moment by moment by moment. It's when your kid is, you know, when you tell your kid to, yeah, lead me to whatever it is that you want to do, and they take two steps and they look back to see if you're following still, right? Like, and then they say, what, are you still, are you coming? Are you still coming? Yeah. Nora says, Daddy, I want to play with you. And I say, okay, cool, bring me some toys. No, I want you to come play with me down here on the floor where I'm playing. I want you to be right beside me. I want to know that you're here. And that's what Gideon wants. And on the one hand, though, we can kind of look at him and say, Gideon, what are you doing? This is really foolish. This is borderline sinful. We can also really relate to this, right? I mean, can we honestly say that we constantly sense the presence of the Holy Spirit every moment of every day? That's not because the Holy Spirit is absent. It's because we so often look away from him to other things. Gideon is acknowledging his weakness. He's basically saying he needs constant assurance because he knows he's prone to doubt and fear because of his own sense of inadequacy. And when we come to terms with our inadequacy, it's important for us to take another step too. And that second step is to acknowledge God's power, to say, yes, I am weak, but he is strong. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? Anyway. It's important for us not to leave ourselves in our weakness. God wants his people to realize their weaknesses. It is essential to the Christian life to recognize that we cannot live the Christian life apart from him. We can do nothing apart from him, John 15, 15 says. Jesus says, I am the branch, or I'm sorry, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who lives and abides in me, he is the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Weakness is not just saying I'm not very good at the Christian life. It's saying I cannot do the Christian life apart from being attached to the vine. And the way we are attached to the vine is by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and yet so often we still doubt his will. We still find ourselves returning to old ways of thinking, particularly when it comes to working for the Lord. We know we need to actively serve him, and maybe we even you know, get that John 15, 15 thing in our head very well, but somehow we still find ourselves thinking that God has need of us for something that he couldn't have otherwise, that it is due to our weakness that he can't have it. Just going to be totally honest, that sentence just came completely from my heart this past week. Because my problem is like Gideon's, where I realize very quickly, I have no problem seeing my weaknesses and my inadequacies. My problem is then not allowing the Lord to raise me up and give me confidence in Him. I get lost in my own inadequacies. I get lost in my own weaknesses. But what Paul says in Galatians 5, 25... If we live by the Spirit, that is to say, if it is the Spirit, if He is the Spirit who is in us, who has affected the power of Christ's atonement for us to our hearts, given us new life. If we live in the Spirit, by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Paul makes the point that we do need to be active in the life of the Spirit. We live spiritually new lives because the Holy Spirit is in us. However, we also need to keep in step with Him. This implies that there are, of course, times that we're not in step with him. And it is there that we seem to have put away our faith and embraced our doubts and our fears and have been trapped by them. We return again to old thinking. If I want to be successful, I need as much as I can come up with in order to do it. And Jesus is just simply not enough. I can pray and read my Bible. I can go to church. I can have fellowship with believers. But I need to figure out what I can add to this thing just to make sure that it works. Jesus died for me and rose again, but I'm also going to make sure that I have some other notches in my belt just in case Christ isn't enough. Do you ever wonder when you face God in eternity, do you ever wonder if he will accept you into the kingdom of God? Again, I'm talking to you, Christian. Do you ever wonder if you will be allowed to enter into the joy of your master? Do you ever wonder if your profession of faith was enough? Do you ever wonder, even if you know the Holy Spirit has worked in you and given you new life, do you ever still wonder, I just don't know if I did enough good stuff after that? The Lord wants you to be freed from that thought. When we walk by the Spirit, we need to realize that our problem is not so much to say that we don't have enough, but that perhaps we have too much. Perhaps there's too much other thinking besides just trusting the Spirit going on. And that's what leads us into verses 1 through 8, where God trims the army away. So the Lord graciously takes away the things that we trust in so that we can trust in him. And that could be painful, right? Boy, have you ever lost a job? Or have you ever had a broken relationship in your family? Or has something terrible happened that has caused such great ripple effects in your life to make you wonder how you can move on beyond that? Maybe it was the Lord trimming something away from your life so that you could have greater trust in him. Well, the Lord is silent through this whole issue of the fleece. He he, kind of gives Gideon what he's looking for. He reassures him. He's very patient with him. But then he turns the tables on him. 
The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me. Now, saying, my own hand has saved me. Therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. <sighs> it's, it's so interesting because the silence of God at the sign of the fleece and this other issue of of Gideon's complete doubt are, are being resolved here to where God's saying, this is what I have to say to you. He wants to bring Gideon seemingly back to the state that he had found him in in chapter 6 and make him that mighty man of valor indeed through his power alone. Well, 7.2 becomes the central verse of our passage. Gideon, there's a problem. You have too much. Of course, the problem isn't directly in the larger size of the army. We saw the Lord save Israel through great numbers with Deborah and Barak before and Ehud. The problem, as the Lord sees it, is that if he saves them this time, when all these soldiers are participating, Israel will think they must have brought something worthwhile to the party. The even truer problem is that in thinking that, they will inevitably take some of that glory for themselves. How destructive that would be for Israel. That certainly could factor into the next generation of apostasy, as we've seen this cycle spinning again and again. The, the people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord, and then the Lord sends them into the hands of their enemies. They cry out. The Lord saves them. Their judge dies, and then they do it all over again. Certainly God does not want to allow this pride to seep in and bring them into that cycle yet again. And it's an awesome thing that the Lord would act in this way to keep his people from sinning. He's not dealing with the particular sin that has happened yet. He's saying, if this happens, it's very clear that my people will sin in light of it, rather than worship, rather than enjoy all the good things that I have for them through this salvation. Does it make you wonder for all your sin, all the sins that, I mean, if we were just going to sit down and start writing down all the things that we've done wrong, does it ever make you wonder what the Lord has actually kept you from doing in his grace? He's actually halted some things from happening, even though you might look at that list and say, yeah, but I really messed up when I did this thing. What if the Lord has kept you from something even worse? That's what he's doing for his people right here. So God sets out a plan to diminish the numbers in the army. And the first condition makes perfect sense, especially since we've seen this already in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. Soldiers with serious fear become serious problems for their fellow soldiers. If there's a chance they could turn tail and run in the middle of a battle, you not only lose someone that you were meant to rely on, but that fear that caused the soldier to run off is terribly contagious. Many other soldiers may just be on the brink of embracing that fear and seeing one run away and realizing that he may have very well just saved his own life. It would be very tempting to say, I want to go and do the same. Then, in a very different way, God thins out the herd again. He says the people are still too many. He separates them in a very strange kind of way. The lapping or kneeling difference has been debated by scholars for years. And apparently there's some discussion that this could be a difference of soldiers who were more prone to alertness and readiness in the event of enemy attack. But I think that's clearly not the way the Lord's getting down to these 300 from 10,000. He's not trying to say, I'm going to give you the cream of the crop. He's saying, I'm trying to give you the absolute least amount that you can do the job with so that people will know that I'm the one who has done it through you rather than just simply telling 9,700 9, people to go home. 
I think God even kind of braces Gideon for the strange separation in verse 4 because he says again here, he's, I'm going to send you down, and whatever I tell you to do, you need to do it. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm going to tell you to do something, and I need you to do it, your first thought is, oh, no, what are you about to ask me to do? It's either going to be something really strange or something I don't like. And in this case, I imagine Gideon thought, Okay, Lord, I get that we were sending away all the fearful, and that's actually very smart because they could be in the way. And what if we went to battle and they suddenly all turned around and ran? We, we can really change our battle strategy up to use the good soldiers. And then on top of that, he says, okay, now look at how they drink water and get rid of all those guys that do it this way and keep that 300 people that do it this way. Now you can do, go and do what I told you to do. And Gideon has got to be thinking, you are kidding me, Lord. How are we supposed to move forward like this? We had 30,000, and now we have 1% of that. It's kind of funny when you look back to what the Lord said to Gideon, that Gideon would strike Midian as one man. 1% of the force of army that he had gathered beforehand. God is not trying to get down to the cream of the crop. Just wants a smaller number, small enough that they would say, there was no reason we should have won except for that the Lord was with us. You need to embrace your weaknesses when you move forward in what the Lord is calling you to do. I'm not really good at evangelism. I don't like striking up conversations. I don't know if I know the Bible enough. I'm afraid that they're going to get mad at me. All those things are weaknesses. And God's answer to it is to say, yes, I know that about you. And that's why I'm sending you, mighty man of valor. Go, in this your strength. I am with you. It's in the place of weakness that the need for our true Savior is fully felt. We cannot come to him any other way. What didn't God take from Gideon? His Holy Spirit. There's no more mention of him in this passage, but the task has not been completed. So there's every reason to believe that he would remain until it is. The Lord was patient with Gideon and assured him of his plan and his presence. So he is with us. We have a huge mission ahead of us each day that we're meant to be a part of. The Lord has called you to be witnesses to the nations. In all the world, you will be my witnesses. And what's his promise at the end of that great commission? I will be with you for a little while until I see that you kind of figured out how to do this, and then I'm going to head back. Is that how the end of Matthew goes? I will be with you always until the very end of the age. We have a huge mission that the Lord has called us to. He's called us to be witnesses. He's called us to make disciples of every nation. And he has chosen you with all of your inadequacies, all of your quirks, all of your failings even, and most importantly, because you need him and cannot do it away apart from him. It's funny when we really get exactly what's going on here and when we get excited about celebrity Christians at the same time. Athletes mention God in their championship speeches. A Hollywood actor professes faith in Christ. Or even on a simpler level, we look at some people and we think it would be so cool to have them at church. They would do so well telling other people about Jesus. It's funny because he chooses no one based on their ability. His goal is to receive all the glory through saints that say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. 9 through 14, the Lord's victory. In our weakness, God's power is shown perfectly. Well, poor Gideon. 
He was super confident back in 7-1. He woke up early. Everybody woke up early with him in the morning. He had 30,000 people in his army. Now they have 1% of that. Gideon probably felt like he was the one man overall again. In his kindness, the Lord plays Gideon's game of signs and proofs, but his proof will be way better than a dewy fleece in the morning. That same night, it says God had Gideon go down the hill. They were still, they're actually camped above their enemy, interestingly. And he even told him to bring Pura with him if he was scared, because he was. Can you see the Lord's kindness in that little note? Go down to the Midianites, and if you're afraid, take Pura with you, your servant, who has a very unfortunate name. But he was his friend. The Lord gave him fellowship. He said, well, you don't have to go by yourself. You can take your servant with you. He's going to show Gideon that he had already given the Midianites into his hand. And there, of course, Gideon overhears a dream in verse 13. He came down, and behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. I dreamed a dream, and a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that they, the tent lay flat. His comrade answers, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camps. By the way, did you see any mentioning about swords yet? Did you see the sword of Gideon at this point? And then you have even the battle cry, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. What are they going to use when they go into battle? Jars and torches. Not quite sword and shield, is it? Well, that barley cake is clearly Gideon. The interpretation is correct. Gideon had just literally rolled down the hill into the camp. What he was about to do would turn the whole camp upside down. Gideon is amazed, and as we said earlier, does the most important thing that he's ever done. He worships the Lord. It takes only a look at God's word to remind us of the great victory that we already have in Christ. Again, just like the Lord said to Gideon, verse 9, For I have given it into your hand. Past tense, completed action. Gideon hasn't even rolled down the hill yet. God is saying this while the guard, who's apparently snoozing on guard duty, is having this dream about a barley cake, and then tells his buddy, he says, I had such a weird dream. A barley cake rolls down, knocks the tent over, it's upside down. What's going on? And then this random Midianite guard has this revelation from the Lord of what the meaning is, and he's absolutely correct. And what we have in Christ is a far greater victory. We should be people with a victory already mindset. It's not as though we go out those doors to try to find victory. We go out those doors in a little bit with a sense of victory that Christ has, has conquered the grave and is alive again today. Romans 8, 37 and 38, one of my favorite passages. Paul says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Not anything in creation, no angels, not even your sin anymore, beloved Christian. Your sin has been done away with at the cross. Yes, but I still sin and I still wonder if God will keep me even though I've done this terrible thing. 
Yes, he will, because your sin is covered at the cross. If you have indeed repented and believed and fully trusted in Christ, and your relationship with sin looks different now, you struggle against it, you have a battle with it. It's no longer just sitting back and being like the Israelites, um, having their, their crops taken and their, their livestock taken year after year for seven years. You no longer live like that. Now you're standing up with your, your, you know, your weapons, right? Your torch and your clay jar and battling sin with the confidence of the Lord's victory. Paul wrote this about his sure salvation in Christ in the face of persecution. There were people who wanted to kill him every day. And what about us? What could come against us that would be enough to remove us from the love of Jesus? We sure let things do that, don't we? We act as though something could come between us and Christ and ruin the whole thing. We don't keep in step with the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living in us, showing us Christ, illuminating the Word to us so that we understand what God has said and can obey it. He's bearing fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's working through the gifts He's given us, making each one of us vital members of the church with something unique to give in order to serve another. And He's done all of that on the platform of your weakness because you are inadequate, because you aren't enough. And that's okay, because Christ is enough. And the amazing thing is that his love is shown to us not in saying, hey, you know, I found something, a little diamond in the rough, something that really surprised me about you, and I decided I really need to have you as a part of my collection. No, he said, look, there is nothing that I need from you, and there is nothing that you have to offer, and I love you anyway. The amazing truth of the gospel is that God does not need us but he does want us for no other reason but than to pour out his love immensely and make us his people forever. We like the 300 soldiers facing a multitude like locusts in abundance, camels without number, like the sand of the seashore. So is the church of Jesus Christ before the gates of hell, which will not overcome her. So why weakness? Because the Savior was made weak for you. God reduces the army to deal specifically with the potential sin of Israel. He does not simply save to remove our struggle or our challenge, but he does it in an effort to grow our understanding of him and lead us to worship. At the cross, God's ultimate salvation of his people. We have so much to learn of his holiness, his patience, his kindness, his wrath, his mercy, his justice, and his great grace. The fact that Gideon was fearful again in verse 10 shows that his confidence was not truly and only in the Lord. If your trust is not exclusively in the Lord, the end result will not be the maximizing of God's glory, but some addition of something else as though you could help God. Well, the battle proves that that is not how the Lord works. He boldly attacks Midian, verses 15 through 25. He goes in that great strength that the Lord has promised him before, that the Lord was with him. He takes his ragtag army and leads them in a battle strategy that could only have worked because the Lord fought for him. What soldier is going to pick up a clay pot and a torch and say, I'm ready for battle? 
except that the Lord was with them, the Holy Spirit working through them to empower them, to give them boldness and courage. The sound of the breaking pots, trumpets blowing, and their battle cry startled the enemy soldiers awake as a large portion of them were probably switching out for the watch. And in the confusion, as that switch was happening, darkness and camels probably going a little crazy, they actually start fighting each other. They think that each other are the enemy. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon is ironic when there are no swords being used by Gideon or the Israelites, but rather pots and torches. It's even more ironic in that this initial tide-changing attack required no sword at all or even for them to lift a finger against their enemies. God fought for them. Gideon was revitalized by the confirmation of the Lord and his precious moment of worship, and he went into the battle with an unshakable confidence. The victory was already won. How could he fail if he could only trust in that truth? What effect does that victory of Christ have in your life today, Christian? Does it invigorate you to live like the conqueror you are because of him who loved you and who has made you so? There are real trials you face day by day. How can you afford not to receive this great confidence that Christ has won for you? How can you not afford to walk in that day by day? Friends, what the Lord has given us as assurance of his work at the cross of Christ is incredible. He has poured out his spirit on us as Joel prophesied. God himself living in the hearts of people, breathing spiritual life each moment, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. We have the complete revelation of his message in the Bible, his means of revealing the glories of the gospel of Jesus, confirming them by the spirit who illuminates that truth to us so that we might understand and create that fruit of the spirit that we mentioned earlier. He's given us each other, and in one sense, today, he has given us back to each other, and we rejoice in that. We have big brothers and big sisters, little brothers and little sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith, and each one sharing the same baptism, the same gospel, the same Holy Spirit as the other. Yet each given unique gifts for the purpose of serving the church and marching onward together to proclaim Christ everywhere. Pick up your torches and your pots, and let's go. This is the great purpose that all we, for, for all that we have. Proclaiming Christ everywhere we go in everything we do. To announce his victory and to walk in the truth of that. Calling others to flee the wrath to come and enjoy the great glories of the Savior. God has not even withheld his own son from us, but he has sent him to earth to suffer all the wrath of God for us on our behalf and to bring us back to him. He meets our weakness by becoming our confidence, our satisfaction, our joy, and all we need for life and godliness. What can he do that he has not already done? What could you ask that he has not already surpassed proving his will to you? Will you accept your weakness and let him show you his strength today? Will you be confident in him alone? Will you give him the glory, do his name, so that you would not fall into sin thinking that you have brought yourself somewhere or have accomplished something? Will you save none of your trust for yourself or any other? Know that when he has taken away those things that you've trusted and he has done so in order that you may see him as all you need and so that you can behold his great glory and be satisfied. Three re reflection questions for you before we go to our last song. 
what weaknesses of yours might be a platform for the Lord to work. Those things that you see as hindrances, I can't serve the Lord, I can't encourage the church, I can't evangelize because of this thing. Change your mind about that. The Lord wants to take those weaknesses and use them as a platform for his strength because as Paul said, in our weakness, his power is made perfect, complete, evident, obvious, clear. So will you live this day worshiping him in his glory, knowing that he has won? Can you go now, not to seek a victory, but can you go in the strength of the victory Christ has already won? He has conquered death for you. Lastly, can you march forward by faith in his power alone and proclaim Christ to others who need to hear? Man, one of the coolest things that Gideon does here, he worships the Lord and it changes everything. He's able to go into battle confident because he knows that the end goal has already been accomplished. And that's the case for us as well. When this is all over, Christ is going to win. Do not let yourselves forget that. As it's been said multiple times by some other theologian, we are a forgetful people. We so easily forget all the glories of what Christ has done for us. Don't forget today, church. Remember, you walk in the victory of Christ in all things. He has conquered sin and death for you. Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing our last song together. Oh, Lord, as we wrap up today, Father, we look to you. We look to your spirit to fill us, to guide us, to give us wisdom, to comfort us, to teach us, to lead us, to do everything because we are weak. And Lord, I pray that in our hearts we would embrace that weakness, not so that it would drag us down and bring us to a destructive mindset, but rather that in our weakness your power would be so clearly obvious to us in everything that we would be reminded that you are for us and not against us. That because you love us, you have made us more than conquerors. So our battles with temptations and with sin, they're nothing. The same spirit that you gave Jesus to conquer and to, to, to work against Satan, you've given us that same spirit. Holy Spirit, work in us and work against the temptations of this world to live like everyone else, to think like everyone else, to seek our own instead of seeking to love one another and to know you more. Lord, work in our hearts. May it be true, as Paul said in Philippians, that we would work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, in awe and wonder of what you're doing because you are working in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Or may you be pleased with your church today. We know that you are because Jesus pleased you and we stand with him and in him having full confidence that we are accepted in the beloved and are welcomed into your presence. Glorify your name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.